I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk review of Game Week 6 of the Premier League. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for downloading and listening to today's podcast. Game week six saw an under-fire Mourinho drop Wayne Rooney and see his team secure a win after back-to-back losses in the Premier League, whereas Liverpool and City continued their excellent form. In the biggest game of the weekend, Arsenal comfortably beat their bogey team, Chelsea, while Sunderland dropped all three points despite being two goals ahead. In order to discuss all nine games that were played this weekend, I am joined by Chris Hanash and Karthik Krishnayer. Gentlemen, let's get started with part one. Chris, Arsenal beating Chelsea 3-0. I didn't see this result coming. Arsenal historically quite poor against Chelsea. Yet in this game, never really looked like conceding, let alone losing. So the first question I have, Chris, and many questions from this weekend. Is this... Uh, so, so before we started the season, we all talked about how it might take a little bit of time for, for Conte to to manifest his ideas onto a a Chelsea team. Are we seeing that happen now in spite of a very good start? Or is this a new arsenal, Chris? (laughs) I I think Conte talked about the fact there was translation issues potentially with what he was trying to get across. When I watch it, I think you've got a mixture of of tangibles and intangibles here. Uh, The intangibles are the fact that Arsenal showed up and and produced a very committed performance that I thought was high energy, particularly at the right points of the game. And then I think they just blitzed Chelsea from the start, which is, I think, something that will become an increasingly popular uh, strategy for teams is to try and win the game almost in the first 30 minutes. Um, In terms of the, the more tactical elements... I just think that at the minute Conte is struggling with the fact that these players aren't as good as the ones that he just left at Juventus. Um, it's it's no shame, I think, to be a lesser back uh, defensive unit than the likes of Chiellini and Buffon. But you look at players like Gary Cahill and, and uh, perhaps Gary Cahill again, he was that bad. <laughs> and and it's, it's difficult to see a future for him. Um, he's just seems to be the, the same player making a mistake for them each week. And just in general, the, the organisation, there was an instance in the second half where their defensive line was more R-shaped than, than sort of L-shaped. Mm. Um, and that for me is, is concerning because, again, as we've talked about before, the, the defensive prowess of Conte is something you assume is a given. And when that isn't even being established in these games, you, you have to question what it is. 
Karthik, I almost felt bad for Cahill, I have to admit. Uh, after he had that horrible back pass, there was almost, it was almost like, uh, I almost felt pity for him because he looked like a man devoid of any sort of confidence. I, I, all I've been reading in the, uh, in, in the soccer circle, journalistic circles is how he needs Terry alongside him. But when he played with Terry, we often talked about how he needed a little bit, a player who was a little speedier than Terry. So it seems like there's no real fit for Gary Cahill right now. Right, and, and obviously Kurt Zuma's injury has mm-hmm. has complicated things for Chelsea in this uh, regard. Yeah, I, I think uh, Cahill is having a, a real tough time of it. This tough time began in the Euros this summer, and it's just carried on into the Premier League season, unlike some other England players who we've seen elevate their games once again, despite having a rough summer. Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane come to mind. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's a real problem right now at the back for Chelsea, and Cahill... Um, is on the wrong side of 30 and you wonder if this is just part of a a long-term career decline for him yeah it's a question worth really considering that one chris uh, a player that is in really good form yet again after somewhere where we heard he might be leaving the club is alexis sanchez let me pose this to you we often talk we often analyze arsene wenger as a manager who revolutionized the premier league with what he did back in the late 90s we don't talk about too much tactical innovation from him really since then, to be honest. The way he's playing Alexis Sanchez, is this a new thing that he's doing? Because Alexis Sanchez is not a traditional striker. We know mm-hmm. that that uh, that Wenger loves himself a, a traditional striker in Giroud. Uh, even Walcott has played a striker, I guess. So is playing Alexis Sanchez as a false nine, playing Otsil behind him, playing Walcott, uh, Iwobi, whoever it is on the other side, is this an is a is this a new tactic from Wenger? Should we be giving him credit for this? I think so. I, th- I think he deserves credit in general for how he he set that team up. He he had Sanchez as sort of this harrying terrier like forward, which is I think a better role for him. I, I don't ever think he's been the type of player that can operate back to goal. He's just not big enough, not strong enough for that. He does have assets though, and I think again that's something that we've perhaps criticised Arsene Wenger for yes. previously is. It's not just the, the loyalty to the same individuals. It's also the fact that is he actually setting up these individuals in the right way? And after Leicester win the, the Premier League last season, I think that question became even more pertinent to, to his own future and his own situation. So I think this is a, a good start. Again, there are players now where I would say he has a few options. And going into this game, the, the burning question for Arsenal fans was, do you start with Cazorla or do you go with Xhaka? Um, because Jack has actually come into to form early on. Yeah, scored two goals. Those are uh, really good goals. <clears throat> and and I think those are the kind of questions and and conundrums that uh, a title challenging side should be facing. Um, in previous seasons, I think it's felt a little bit like there maybe weren't those options, and it was a case of you know, do you want to play Coquelin and Cazola this way or this way? Um, but I think the the more options you have like that, the better for them. And I'll be curious to see if he stays with this Sanchez experiment because I think it'll work against a team like Chelsea. I'm not so sure if it works against a team that comes to the Emirates with the intention of of sitting a little bit deeper and staying a bit more compact. I think it needs that space for the the role to really flourish. Karthik, uh, Chris brings up that midfield. And in some ways, uh, that's an area that we absolutely need to discuss with Fabregas starting, it's a, it's a player that we all wanted to see play, uh, be involved more with Antonio Conte, has been a game changer for them. But in this game, he was largely ineffective. And you can argue 
Of course, this is completely academic at this point. But had Matic started next to N'Golo Kante against someone against Castorla alongside uh, Kokolin, now that's an area that I think Chelsea would have dominated had Matic started. Yeah, their midfield got overrun, and I think with Fabregas, you're, you're just hoping that he can find the space and time to operate in midfield, time on the ball and the space to play the kind of balls he can play and make the types of runs he, he can make. And this sort of game wasn't the place for it, but then you, you, you have to uh, you have to sit somebody, right? So mm-hmm. it, it became a very, uh, very complicated thing. I mean, I, think I thought Oscar played pretty well against Liverpool in the second half uh, last week. And, and obviously the first half had been a disaster for Chelsea. I mean, let's the parallels between the first half of this game and the first half of the Liverpool game are pretty, right. pretty striking. And, and both were um, ended with similar results, right? Both matches ended similarly. I, I think it, the Fabregas conundrum is really one of the things bugging Conte at this point because it seems like he is more effective in a stretched game against a better team from minute 70 onward. You can start him against teams where you're going to need that that kind of probing passing right. and he's going to have time and space to operate in midfield. But then if he seems to have stood out in in one of those games impulsively you can't sit him for the next game. And that's that's the problem. We might be in this position throughout the season where Fabregas ends up starting against a Manchester United or a Spurs or Man City. And, and you think, gosh, he was just, uh, uh, it was a mistake tactically. He just wasn't very good. So I think Conte has to look at the individual matchups when he makes determination about Fabregas. And I think he was already doing that, but there's been a lot of pressure because Fabregas has played well late in certain games when he's come on to, to persist with him in the, in the starting 11. Chris, to underline what Karthik just said about Fabregas, um, I was looking at some stats today, again, for whatever reason, and I found this stat. Now, before let me give the context for it. In some ways, an area that we always look at is how effective is the link-up between your your attacking midfielder and um, and your holding midfielder. So uh, that, that's an area that tells you how involved your attacking midfielder is. So mm-hmm. basically, let's look at the comparison here. Fabregas and Hazard, only eight passes completed. In comparison, Casorla to Otsil, 26 passes completed. Uh, that's a staggering difference. So let me get to the question here with that context. And it comes from one of our listeners, Jay Bones Jones. Great name. WTF is going on at Chelsea, Chris? Well, that's, <clears throat> that's a good question. I, I think... <laughs> Uh, I think we should maybe schedule a separate show for that personally. Yeah. To, to condense it though, for, for me, I think it's a team that hasn't transitioned well from coach to coach and more importantly, generation to generation. Um, so the players that were perhaps very much on the cusp of being finished when Mourinho wins that Premier League are now firmly in that camp. Um, you look at the fact that Ivanovic has been kind of singled out and, and seen as not up to, to scratch for a few years now, yet they haven't addressed it in general. They haven't really been able to buy a, a fullback that succeeded. They had Baba Rahman, but again, that didn't really work. Right. Um, and I think, honestly, it will be a bit more of a, an arduous campaign for Chelsea still moving forward, perhaps even into next season, because they, they've got, at the minute, they've got a, a group of players who the experienced ones, I would argue, are probably a little bit too old 
and the young ones or the the uh, the lone army, if you will, that are, are out across Europe, they're just a year or two too young, I think, to be to be thrusted and expected to deliver what's needed. So the likes of Andreas Christensen, Lewis Baker, who scored uh, today for Vitesse, a really nice goal. Those kind of players, I think, personally have to be the club's future. Um, I don't think it's sustainable to just keep replenishing or, or buying a new team every few years when the, the current crop reach their age and their peak. It's just about having patience with that, though. And I think when you look at it now, as I say, that's the problem for me, is that I think you're seeing a team that is is sliding down the mountain, not climbing up it. And it's it's how you prepare for that. It, it happens to every team. Um, and I think that's where you have to level a bit of criticism at those in the, the higher ranks, likes of Emanalo and such, for not preparing the team better in that way. Um, Karthik, why did Chelsea go from a, a club that was able to buy pretty much everyone they wanted to to a club that's become a lot more sensible in the transfer market? I mean, the easy answer is FFP, but let's be honest, FFP is largely pointless, at least now. So tell me, at least in the last couple of years, why aren't Chelsea buying the way they did? I think it's philosophies of the managers you have and disconnect between the manager and the director of football, Michael Emenelu. And that's created, and even the... um, the process and, and the thought process around the development of young players and loaning players to Vitesse and, and all over the place. Uh, uh, Christensen, Chris mentions, I, I think he could move right into this Chelsea team and start, but they sent him on a two-year loan to Mucin Gladbach mm-hmm. and um, he continues to play there. He continues to start there, continues to stand out in, in the Bundesliga. So I think there's a differing philosophy between the director of football, who is a favorite of Roman Abramovich's, and the rotating door of managers they've had, which creates a situation where there's very little consensus around buys, there's very little consensus around player development, mm-hmm. and therefore they're not buying as many players. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only way I can interpret it. Yeah. Uh, Chris, we have another question from Carlos Zaldivar. Uh, sorry, from uh, yeah, from Carlos Saldivar. We could ask this question any at any point during the podcast, but there's a reason I'm asking it here. Which clubs should be looking to start trying to persuade Simeone for two years when his contract runs out? I would argue the two clubs that we've been discussing so far. Hmm. Um, yeah, actually, no, that that's not a bad shout. Uh, Chelsea and, and Arsenal would, would be good. I, I think... You know, I think as well, and I saw uh, David Cartledge, who's a good friend of mine and also very knowledgeable on, on the league, talking about this just this week, the idea that perhaps Simeone's team is not great, it's just very good, and that it makes me wonder how Simeone will actually translate to that next role. If it's, if it's Inter, because again, that's a club he's been heavily linked with, has a playing pass there as well. His son mm-hmm. is, is now also in Italy, in fact, scored to, today for... I believe it's at Genoa. Um, so there's a lot to be considered there. Yes, those two clubs could. I think what you need is ideally, if you're looking for a Chelsea manager, you need someone who can can integrate youth with a good track record. Um, if you're Arsenal, I would argue, assuming this season does not result in a title, you need someone who is just an unashamed winner. Um to almost rebuild the mentality at that football club and rebuild the idea that they they can be 
at the top of the league again. I think that's what's eroded away from them. It's it's the confidence in big games that I see lacking in Arsenal. Yes, it's come today against Chelsea, but this is a Chelsea team that is is faltering. It's mm-hmm. it's not Man City, for example. If if for for whatever reason we come to the point where we're discussing an Arsenal win over Man City, then I'll say okay, that's a huge step towards fixing that issue. But at this precise moment, again. I, it's very difficult. I'm not looking to diminish the Arsenal victory as much as to say that at this precise moment, I don't see it as being a huge turning point in the title race. Yeah, I think it's a, a bit of a complicated analysis from just from my perspective because I, I think we talked about this last week, Chris, where I said that I th- we I feel that we move the goalposts for Arsenal more than any other team. When there's a good result for Arsenal, we contextualize it that the other team was mm. poor. When the when there's a poor result, we think it's same, the same old Arsenal. But the counterpoint to that is what you provided that historically we ha- we have to do this because they've let us down so many times. So I guess we'll just keep an eye on it. Before we get to discussing Liverpool, Liverpool versus Hull, I want to tell our listeners that if you're like us on the, or the, me or the rest of the crew on today's podcast, uh, where do you go to find the latest TV schedules for your favorite soccer league or club? Every day, worldsoccertalk.com updates the TV and streaming schedules for all of the major league soccer leagues in the US. Everything from the Premier League, the Championship and La Liga to the, to MLS, Liga MX, Bundesliga and the NASL, my beloved NASL. May you live long and prosper. Plus, worldsoccertalk.com <laughs> is the first website to post TV schedules, often days before the official league and TV sites post theirs. So when you're wondering where to turn to in order to find where your club is playing on US airwaves, make worldsoccer.com your first destination. Karthik. That is one of the main reasons I have a bookmark, by the way. As someone that travels to the States, it can be so confusing for a simpleton like me to try and use the TV guide. So to have a little website that tells me where everything is and which buttons to press, oh, it's a lifesaver, I tell you. Look at that. An endorsement from the great Kristen Henash. What more could we want? Karthik, man who doesn't need your endorsement, is Jurgen Klopp. He's happy. His team is playing football like like hell, and he played football like Hull this week with a five-one win. I don't know. That was a really poor pun. We'll, we'll pretend that I didn't make that pun. But they beat Hull five-one, uh, and they were dominant from start to finish. But the sending off really killed that killed that whole team, uh, didn't it? Yeah, Al, Al- Hamadi being sent off. It was a. Uh... It's a tough one for Hull. Second successive week, they've been playing a, a big, big club giant in the league, and and have had to, had to do so with ten men. Uh, they still fought, though. I, I like the qualities that Mike yeah. Phelan has installed in this Hull side, uh, and they've got one more match in this really brutal stretch, and and they'll uh, which is against Chelsea. Then they'll come right. out with seven points and 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 live to fight another day. But. Uh, they just look so rampant, right? Uh, Liverpool, when they're in the mood, when they're swashbuckling, so to speak, they just look so uh, confident and comfortable going forward. And what a great goal from uh, from Lalana once again, Saito Mane, just such a difference maker, uh, pushing in from from wide areas, taking guys on on the dribble, two, three guys in the area, creating space for his teammates, and also uh, uh, opportunities to score for himself. Chris. Uh- a position that we all posited as as a possible Achilles heel for Liverpool was left back. I cannot praise James Milner enough in this game and in, in a couple of recent games. 
he has been absolutely magnificent. Uh, not even counting the fact that he's their PK, uh, he's their PK taker. Just his defensive positions. In fact, before this game started, when I was talking to my buddy Gabe, I thought that Snodgrass would run riot against James Milner. If anything, Chris, it was the other way around. James Milner took Snodgrass apart. He did. I think the benefit is that, for me, a whole side going to Anfield is not setting up to really go at Liverpool. And I Mm. think it makes it slightly easier for Milner to perform his job. I also think if you actually watch the the game, particularly that first half, the, the pressing is so tenacious and so consistent and it's done in groups that actually there's there's not much of an opportunity for Hull to form an attack. Um, there's lots of really under pressure clearances, a lot of players that are just trying to get rid of the ball rather than actually instigate anything dangerous. And I think in that regard, it allowed Milner a bit more freedom to move forward. And I think this is where it actually becomes a real benefit to have a midfielder at fullback because you have a technical player who can contribute in the final third, which against a team that is trying to to limit its damage and, and essentially soak up the pressure, that's perfect because it means you can be a little bit more dynamic with your play and you don't have to be so formulaic when you're trying to, to break them down. And I think for, from that regard, it's the kind of performance that moving forward, I think if you're a Liverpool fan, builds tremendous optimism because... I think during the course of the last few seasons, we've seen instances where those kind of games have tripped them up. And you get the just the slight feeling. Again, it'll need more examples, I think, before it can become a, a recognised uh, and accepted fact. You just get the feeling that finally they've found a way to, to handle those teams and work against them um, so that they can also supplement the, the big games where they do seem to shine consistently right. if you look at them. Absolutely. Karthik, another thing that Klopp will be really proud of uh, from his own tactical uh, nows is the fact that he's, in a lot of ways, made Sturridge an afterthought. Um, I think a lot of the analysis for Liverpool, at least from people like me who aren't very good at this sort of thing, was how is he going to handle Sturridge? And he has created a system where I don't really notice when Sturridge is not playing for the most part. In this game, he didn't start Firmino, Coutinho, Mane up top, and you you highlighted Mane. But this is something that that would make Liverpool fans really happy because the perennially injured Sturridge, in some ways, was holding Liverpool back. Yeah, now the question is, does he become a a dressing room distraction or does he embrace being... In a, in a team where he's going to get opportunities to play coming off the bench, start some matches, and he's going to get the opportunities to score a lot of goals. Mm-hmm. That's the big question. So storage, keep an eye on this space because he, uh, he could, has the, uh, the potential of blowing things up if he uh, doesn't embrace his role. Yeah. Speaking of blowing things up, Coutinho is another, with another strike from outside the box. I don't think there's anyone right now in Europe who's uh, more consistent with those long-range strikes than Felipe Coutinho. Let's move ahead. Uh, Chris, let's talk about Stoke 1-1 against West Brom. Stoke actually started this game very strongly. Uh, Ex-Liverpool player Glenn Johnson had a had his chip cleared off the line. Uh, eventually, Allen scored. But West Brom come away with a point. Yet another set-piece goal by Salomon Rondon. The question I have for you is for Stoke. I think we talked about West Brom quite a bit last week. Is this 4-3-3 working for Stoke? And the reason I ask that is because last year we we focused on the the new Barcelona, Stoke-Alona, and they were playing that 4-2-3-1.
But they had Crouch playing in as the main striker and Crouch as well. Crouch. Uh, they have Bonnie now. And I, I can see that 4-2-3-1 working. And I think it's a better formation for this Stoke team. Your thoughts? I'm inclined to agree with you. I think it is a better um, sort of formation, a style for them in general. I think the, the issue I have with, with Stoke at the minute is uh, I look at that midfield and there's not a great deal of creativity in it. Mm. It's I think, yes, on Saturday it was Jeff Cameron, uh, Glenn Whelan and Joe Allen. And one of the criticisms that was often levelled at Joe Allen when he was at Liverpool was that he didn't post enough numbers in terms of assists and goals. I think, especially for being well shabby, yeah. Mm, and and I think honestly, he's not a bad player. I should start by saying that. I am also inclined to agree with that evaluation that he doesn't contribute enough in that, and he doesn't break forward in the same way that I used to see him do with Swansea when he first came into the league. You then add on top of that the fact that Glenn Whelan is not someone that is traditionally a goal scorer or any any kind of creator. And Jeff Cameron is a defender playing in midfield. I think he's a very talented defender, someone who can, uh, you know, carry the ball very well. But again, it, there's no, there's no sort of link man, if you will. There's no piano player. It's three piano carriers. Mm. And that means that realistically you're relying on Shakiri and Arnautovic to provide the creativity. And equally to, to to supplement that as well, if we're playing Boney as, as they did on, on Saturday, there's no one running onto the ball. There's no one making those kind of late surges into the box in the way that, to compare them to West Brom, Chadley or Fletcher maybe is. Um, and that for me is a concern. It, it's almost a little bit too... Perhaps negative is a harsh word for it, but I, I, that's the best way I can can look at it. I'm surprised that he hasn't looked to bring in Mbula, who can can kind of go both boxes, or even uh, Bojan, who, who was on the bench. Just maybe putting him off Boney and allowing him the opportunity to float into spaces on the edge of the penalty box, maybe make those bursts inside. That's the kind of player I think that they need at the minute. It will require a little bit more of a... Uh, Cavalier or a little bit more optimism, I guess, from Mark right. Hughes. And, and, and I, th- I think that part of the reason he's playing the way he is now, it's a vicious cycle of he's lost some games, his job is under pressure, and he's now trying harder not to lose games than win them. Karthik, the, uh, as Chris Hint said, the Potters have won just one of their last 13 Premier League games, drawing four, losing eight. Uh, Sparky in a lot of trouble, don't you think? Yeah, I think he's in a lot of trouble, Sparky, and I think he's he, he, he's so unsettled the side with a lot of these these glamorous signings, the Stokelona concept, and and there just doesn't seem to be the kind of grit and resourcefulness you need when you're back against the wall with this side. I don't know how much longer they're going to go with it. Uh, Stoke is the one team that, uh, in their Premier League existence has not made a, ch- a change of manager in the middle of a season. Hmm, and they I had Pulis since they came up, uh, and then they let him go at the end of the 2012-2013 season after the season, and then Sparky since. They've had two managers in eight seasons. There were actually in ten seasons when Pulis was there before they, they came up, and they don't generally make changes. They've never made a change in the middle of a Premier League season. I do think the board's patience is being tested. Yeah. And Ron Doan's equalizer could be just a trigger to um, to um, make a change. The question is, 
what kind of manager do they go for next? Do they continue this experiment with some sort of continental flair, or do they go and get a resourceful, successful British manager that can get them through the, out of this mire? And so that's going to be a big question going forward. Like Tony Pulis. Karthik, we had a question from Adam Fata, and this is a perfect time to ask this. Who do you believe would be the first manager to get the sack in the EPL? Will it be Hughes? Yeah, or, um, gosh, West Ham has a history of not sacking managers, yeah. and he's a former player, but Billich is off to a bad start. I think he'll have a little more time. Mm-hmm. Let's see, who else is doing particularly poorly? I mean, David I, I thought I thought because it was Moisey, he would get he would get some time at Sunderland, but Sunderland has this history of uh, letting managers start seasons and then sacking them before the end of the season, and then uh, authoring great escapes with a new manager, and maybe that's uh, that's going to happen again with Sunderland. I, I guess the, the smart money would be on Hughes or Moyes right now, uh, yeah. but it's possible it could be someone else. Like I, Mourinho. I, well, no, I'm I think. Just kidding. I think Mourinho will get the season, but um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think that there could be – maybe there will be a surprise out of mid-table, and uh, then there would be a shake-up because let's say there is a, an opportunity for uh, another manager to move uh, an Eddie Howe or somebody to a bigger club, then uh, you might have some sort of domino effect. But, but probably it's going to be Stoke or Sunderland. When we come back, we'll get into talking about Manchester United's win against Leicester, Burnmouth's win against Everton, and Tottenham's win against Middlesbrough. Then we'll also give you our top fours for the week. Stay tuned for part two of the World Soccer Talk podcast. In the biggest upset of the weekend, Manchester United beat Leicester City, Chris. Uh, before the game, Mourinho started with his, the Einstein's quote comment. Uh, and, uh, after the game, if you have Manchester, if you believe Manchester United supporters, it was a perfect example of how Mourinho was right about the Einsteins. Except, Chris, the Einsteins wanted Wayne Rooney dropped. And Mourinho did drop the Einsteins. So I guess he, uh, did drop Wayne Rooney. So I guess he listened to the Einsteins. Yeah, again, it's it's another instance of his relationship with the media taking a, a, a really different turn. When he first came to England, he was actually really highly thought of, I think, because he did stir the pot a lot. And he was, I don't know, there's this weird kind of fascination with, with a character, in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. And I think as he's progressed through his career and tried to do that in other countries, most notably uh, Italy, it hasn't worked for him. If anything, it's gone really south for him. I remember when he had that spat with Claudio Ranieri in Italy, they just didn't like it at all. They thought it was hugely disrespectful to talk about a man of his sort of calibre in that way. And you look at it again now, they don't seem as enamoured with it. Um, there were because certainly there are flickers. Other characters. There are lots of other managers who mm. are characters too. Exactly. They're, they're not giving the same kind of sound bites that everyone else is. And, and you know, I think the, when he said he was the happy one, mm-hmm. little things like that have, have piqued their interest, have, have kind of got them interested again. But it, overall, it has been an awkward relationship. And I think, again, for, for someone to, to talk about Einstein's and erasing 16 years of his career, when he's talked so vocally about how Wenger is a specialist in failure, right, right. I, I see an air of hypocrisy about that. And I say that as someone who's quite a big fan of, of Jose Mourinho. Um, I, I think, honestly, as you rightly said in, in your kind of introduction there, 
the fact that Wayne Rooney is dropped and they win convincingly, and then he has the cheek to kind of turn around and, and lament those who were saying for weeks that he should drop Wayne Rooney. Again, it's he doesn't look big or clever doing it. That's the thing. I think he's lost his air of sophistication that he brought when he first arrived. I think that's the thing. He does seem a little bit emperor's new clothes now, Jose Mourinho. Yeah, one of the best bits of analysis, gentlemen, that I, I've listened to about Mourinho was Mina Rizuki talking about Mourinho on this week's uh, BBC Five Live with uh, Doton Adebayor. It's absolutely brilliant. Any, any of our listeners uh, should check it out. It's about halfway through the podcast. Um, Karthik, really quickly, uh, we continue with this um, Man United train of thought here. I think uh, there was a little bit of overreaction about how, quote, unquote, good United were. Because I, I if you take out that 15-minute salvo where United were magnificent. I mean, they could have scored another couple of goals outside of the four that they scored. United really didn't create that much. And that's been my complaint about Manchester United uh, looking into the club is that I look at that Southampton game where I thought they were very good. But outside of that, they've really struggled to create chances uh, as a rule of thumb in, in uh, under Mourinho. They didn't really need to create chances. So first of all, I think part of the narrative is because there's a strong anti-Rooney bias in, in the British press. And I, I've complained about this for years, Napoon, you know that. Yes. So I think that that's, that's uh, a part of the narrative is that uh, regardless of what was going to happen in this game of Manchester United, one, with Rooney being dropped, they're, we're going to talk about brilliant football and the, 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 the new new Manchester United. Is it time for Rooney to move on? Should he sign an MLS? You know, all, all, this, all these kind of nonsensical articles that get recycled. Uh, just written in, all, in many times by hacks, for lack of a better word. I mean, I, I would like to see some real kind of um, thoughtful, analytical pieces about Rooney's decline. He is in decline. I, I'm not denying that. But there's there's just been an axe to grind because this is the guy who's been forced to carry the water for England. And every uh, failure in a major tournament somehow gets uh, pinned on him or, or part of it gets pinned on him. So that's a things, but I know this is about Manchester United, not about England, but that clouds the perception and biases of journalists who uh, have uh, determined that they're going to they're uh, rip this guy's legacy. Let, let me say this. So I, I often see you defending Rooney on, on Twitter, and I, and I respect that. I respect your ability to look past the, the you know, the, the reactionary analysis of Man United supporters, etc. But I don't agree with the notion that this is a, is a media-led thing, because I think any you, you talk to Man United supporters, you talked about talk about supporters as a as a rule of thumb, and we have seen, uh, as you said, a massive decline in Wayne Rooney's performance. And the point of the matter is that he should be criticised, especially when when he's being played uh, without any question. His his playing, he's the only player in the Manchester United team, Karthik, whose question has beyond his has been un, beyond contestation for three years. United has moved on Robin van Persie, moved on Bastian Schweinsteiger. I mean, we're talking about players that, has, that have won as much, if not more, have had a higher standing in the game than Wayne Rooney. Yet, Wayne Rooney was the only one that was constantly uh, defended for or, or defended by by three different managers. So I think that's the source of the frustration, not this bias. That's my that's my opinion. Well, that, that's fair. And I think uh, there's, there's a lot more sophistication and nuance around the way 
hardcore Manchester United fans think than journalists who cover the England national team and view the the performances of every England player mm-hmm. in the Premier League through the lens of what they're going to do in the next international tournament or the next qualifier. There are a number of those journalists, and they have not yep. they have been on Rooney's back since 2010, since that World Cup, and that's uh, and they haven't stopped. It's been six years, but yeah, I, I respect that point of view. I think I think you're right to a large extent, but this game, I felt like. United controlled the midfield in a way that mm-hmm. they haven't sure. in previous matches. And I thought Juan Mata was very good. Yep. I, I have to say, Ander Herrera was very, very yeah, good. I agree. It's a selection dilemma for for Mourinho going forward because I think Marwan Fellaini was one of the few players who was consistently playing mm-hmm. well yep. in that role. Uh, not in just in that role, but in any role on the team. He's been dropped. It's a little hard for him, but Herrera comes in and does quite well. You've got to like Manchester United's options in central midfield and and now wonder what this says about, and we know Carrick is going to have a role, yeah. uh, a, a, a limited one, but uh, due to his his age and his injuries, but he he will have some sort of role. What does this say about Morgan Schneiderlin? Mm-hmm. Where is he in the pecking order? We, there's been a lot of focus on Bastian Schweinsteiger, but Morgan Schneiderlin is a player that Manchester United bought last summer, mm-hmm. summer of 2015, that potentially could have gone to Arsenal and fit right into that central midfield equation at Arsenal. And you now wonder what his future is. And then that, that's something that's in the back of my mind as we see Fellaini and Herrera reemerge, guys that were bought pre, prior to uh, Schneiderlin being bought. And those two players have reemerged and are higher on the pecking order than Schneiderlin now. Terrific points. Chris, uh, most importantly in that midfield, we finally got to see Pogba do the dab alongside Lingard. And probably the most important nuanced question in terms of tactics is this. Comparing Pogba's dab at United versus Juventus, what's better? Um, I'm, I think if I'm going to be a hipster, I'm going to have to say Juventus because that was before it was cool. <laughs> if I'm going to be a hipster. When were you not a hipster, Chris? Now, now it's supremely commercial. It's, pro- <laughs> no. it's probably sponsored by a noodle company. <laughs> <laughs> That's accurate. Um, let's talk about Leicester City, Karthik. Um, I, I have to, uh, a question from, uh, Jay Bones Jones was, are Leicester City new relegation favorites? And I, I think that's kind of a, a tongue in cheek question. But the, the bigger question here is about the defense of Leicester City. They were, that defense was excellent last season. We talked about Morgan, uh, sorry, uh, Wes Morgan. Robert Huth uh, and that defense, especially with Fuchs on one side uh, and Danny Simpson on the other side. It was an excellent defensive line, uh, consistent throughout the season. This season, in this game, let's talk about this game. Three goals from set pieces. Absolutely unforgivable. And uh, the question comes from Pat Devitt. He talks about how troubling of a concern is the bad form of the back line. That's Leicester City's. Has age caught up with Morgan and Huth? Yeah, I think... The easy analysis prior to this game was that losing Angola Conte as a shield in front of right. that back four can't use that this op- game. Yeah. Opened up, yeah, opened up the 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 uh, the, the the defense. But these were three goals on set pieces, mm-hmm. and the set piece defending was a strong point of Leicester last season. Exactly, and and this year it's been a, a disaster. I think Morgan played above his natural level last season prior season two and, and played above his natural level for Jamaica in international tournaments. He's been on a two-year uh, high. He's just returning to his natural level at an advanced age. Huth has been particularly poor. Hmm. And that's a concern because I think we had felt Robert Huth was in decline at Stoke a few seasons ago. And 
the move to Leicester, which was initially a loan deal and then became permanent last summer, seemed to have revived his career for a season uh, to the point where I, I think there was some controversy in Germany. Who hasn't been called up to the national team since he played for Chelsea, 2005, 2006, that, well, maybe we, we should take him to the Euro. So he, he anchored the defense of a Premier League champion. Uh, and, of, of course, they didn't call him up, but that was how much his stock had risen mm-hmm. or there had been a revitalization in his career in a short period of time. Now I think he's just returning to where he was in 2014 and uh, in late 2014 when Stoke made the decision, Mark Hughes, to discard him and – and, and send him on loan to Leicester and play with players like Jeff Cameron, who aren't necessarily natural center backs as a center back, because that's um, that's where he was in his career. It's very troubling. Leicester spent a lot of money in the transfer window, and they spent it on attacking players. And when I saw yesterday's game, you have a Damari Gray you can bring off the bench. You have a Slimani in the it's team. a terrific goal, by yeah, the way. Yeah, Gray almost had a second terrific goal. Mm-hmm. De Gea made a great save. You you have a, a player like Okazaki who had scored twice in midweek at the League Cup against uh, uh, Chelsea. We know how good he was in the title-winning team last year. You still have a Joa. I'm now thinking Leicester have too many attacking players and, and nothing behind them. And it's uh, – um, it's an odd situation to discuss because Leicester's transfer policy, their recruitment policy had been so sound going back to uh, 2010 and 2011 in the championship. And five years of that, which built an, a team that, that uh, ripped through the second division, the championship, the year after they didn't uh, get promoted because of that um, – Crazy sequence where Almunia made the save and Watford got the goal uh, in uh, in stoppage time in the playoffs, and mm-hmm. then you know ha- ha- took the same team, the same core essentially, adding a couple supplementary parts, Conte and Mares, or actually Mares was with them that last year in the championship, adding a couple supplementary parts like uh, Fuchs and 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 uh, Conte all the way to the Premier League title, and it had been their recruitment policy. I um I think their signings have been good, but they're scoring goals wasn't a problem for them last season. And and maybe it's because of champions league and they need to rotate. You get a guy like Slimani. That's a big time striker they've signed. And I, and I think uh, uh, fans of English football will be very excited to watch him for years to come with Leicester. And he's going to help them in champions league where, where they're already atop of their group. But gosh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know why if they, they had 30 million to spend, uh, why didn't they spend it on another central defender or, or a right back or left back or, or something uh, that would have helped them uh, defensively? Chris, let's talk about Burnmouth's win over Everton, a one nothing win. Uh, Burnmouth, based on their first half, deserved more than just the one goal. Wilshire hit the post. Wilson should have scored. Um, and Arthur went just slalomed past Barkley, who was poor again defensively, uh, missed by a couple of inches. Um What's there to take away from this game? I guess the, from the Everton perspective, uh, everything they created was from down the right wing with Lukaku, Barkley, and Valencia all missing chances. But in general, not much to take away from this game for either team, in my opinion. No, I, I must confess I had a similar opinion when I, I finished watching it. I thought there was there was bright moments for Jack Wilshere, which are important in terms of his uh, season, because again, he, he needs consistent game time more than anything. Um, I was quite surprised to to see him play in general. I think from an Everton perspective, that Ross Barkley header was the one that stuck out for me. I, watching that back, 
I think a player of his ability should be scoring that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not an easy header. It really header. was. Uh, it really, he should have buried that one. He, I mean, he did it's, the right thing, right? He kind of tried to uh, get it on the ground, but just the direction was off. I, th- I think he just misjudged the flight of the whole thing. Mm. He, he, he was trying to jump when really, I think if he just stands there, he's in a much better position to just kind of guide it in possibly to the bottom corner. Again, I'm, I'm saying this with absolute mountains and heaps of hindsight. Um, it, it came to him quite quickly. I, th- I think games like this, though, will define whether Everton are able to, to really push up into that top six where they want to be. Chris, the, be- your, your, your comment actually brought up a question I was, I was thinking about. So do you think uh, in recent years, in the last 10 years or so, yet England, young English players have become so obsessed with playing the ball along the ground and dribbling and things that weren't associated with English players that they've lost the art of heading? When I think of the youngsters in England now, the exception of Harry Kane, I would say Sturridge is not exceptional header of the ball. Uh, Sterling definitely isn't. Barkley isn't. So have English players forgotten the, the most basic way of scoring goals, which is heading? I think that's a very good point. I'm, I'm inclined to uh, agree with you and say that it is a skill that has diminished. Um, I grew up in a generation where t- there were a lot of fantastic headers of the ball. Um, you had the likes of Shearer, Sheringham, Ferdinand, just to name a few. Even further back in midfield, the likes of Scholes could could find a, a good space to put a, a header on goal. It is a, a skill, I think, that you're right, is, is partly diminishing as well because I think we're seeing the impacts of concussions and just in general what heading a ball can do to you um so it's it's a very i think complicated issue i don't i don't think it's solved with a yes or no personally i think it's it's much more layered than that for for barkley in particular though, c- consistency is, is what's hampering his game more than anything um he does have this potential to to be a world beater and i remember uh martinez being present once when he, he talked about the fact that for him, Barkley was like a mix of Balak and, and Gascoigne at times. And I, I see what he means by that. Having watched him a few different times, um, I've, I've seen a player that honestly I think has the potential to operate in, in a similar way. Um, it's just whether he can do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Karthik, let's talk about Tottenham's win over Middlesbrough. A 2-1 win. Uh, this win means Tottenham have made their best start in the top flight for 51 years. And this was a crucial result, Karthik, given uh, Harry Kane's injury, which at this moment we believe he's going to be out for about four weeks, give or take a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Son scores another brace, uh, one of them another exceptional goal. The concern with Son, Karthik, is that uh, I, I was reading an article that talks about the fact that he might they might lose him for a few months this season uh, for national service. He has to complete 18 months before the age of 29. As our resident political, give us some context here. Yeah, South Korea requires all of its citizens to engage in national service. I think we've had this conversation about previous players of of Park Chi-sung and and, uh, Park when he was signed by uh, Arsenal a few years ago and the national service. Didn't Min also have something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So Son uh, will be lost at some point for Spurs uh, for for a few months. Uh, Maybe it'll be next season, but at some point. That would be quite a blow. You know, they've they've sold Nasser Chadley to to West Brom. He's made a good start there, by the way. 
away. And they're now very reliant on Son playing in, in kind of this hybrid winger slash attacker position that uh, he's excelling in. But you know, to the game here, I think this was a, a critical result for Spurs with um, with Harry Kane's injury. And, and I have Spurs right there in my uh, in my title chase, thinking that they're they're one of the teams that can win this thing. I began to hedge with with Kane's injury. I, I thought, okay, th- this is a situation where Victor Janssen is going to have to acclimate to English football and step up. Otherwise, they're not going to get the production of goals. But then you think about it, they've got Son, they've got Lamella, they've got Christian Eriksen, they've got Dele Ali. That's four players that can score from midfield. And uh, obviously, they have Musa Dembele also, and Wanyama, Sissoko, they, they, they have the ability to score in, 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 at times too. So maybe they're going to get through this period okay. There's an international break, uh, and uh, so they'll, they, they've got a, a week there that Kane wouldn't have been playing anyway. And then uh, there's another uh, international break in November. Mm-hmm. And perhaps after that break, they'll have Kane back, and he'll only miss something like four four or five Premier League games. And, and if that's the case, I think uh, they're, uh, they're – their chase at the title and, and probably more importantly for Spurs realistically staying in the top four and qualifying for champions league again, uh, is, uh, is still on track. Yeah. The, they have a couple of tricky games coming up. That is, uh, they go to Moscow midweek home against city next weekend, but your points are well taken there, Karthik, uh, really quickly thought on, uh, Middlesbrough, uh, very poor defensively. Callum Chambers in particular, uh, was very poor in this game. The second goal is probably the best example of how poor he really was. Basically, let Son run up and down the wing without getting a tackle in. Um, let's go to players of the week, Chris. Let's, uh, I'll start with mine easy. Son is my, uh, uh, is my player of the week. What about you? I'm going to go for, oh no, I'd made this mistake last week and I picked a player in Central Europe. You, you um, really don't know how this say works. Oliver Burke of, of uh, Red Bull <laughs> um, No, it's it's not like it's clearly branded or anything either, which is, right. is um, <laughs> even worse. The the player the I enjoyed, talk, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the player I enjoyed uh, most this week actually was Raheem Sterling. Um, yeah. I think again he's someone that has this massive price tag, and everyone thinks he's he's useless. Um, last season, whereas I think even now, even though he's performing, people are still sort of looking for sticks to beat him with. I think he's really, I would go as far as say he is at the minute, he's the best Englishman on form. Um, and I think he, he really not, not does. Not Caleb Chambers then, okay. No, I, I think he, I think what he proves is, is, is the impact a coach can have. Um, because at sometimes I think we've had debates where, we question if a coach is really just someone herding the sheep. Um, whereas actually, if you look at what Guardiola has done for him already, then uh, it's it's been massive for his career. Karthik? I was actually going to pick the same player, Raheem Sterling. So I'm going to go. Typical um, city bias, Karthik. That's typical city bias. Yeah, right. I know. (laughs) So I'm going to go. I'm going to um, associate myself with everything Chris has said. Absolutely right. And instead go for Metsud Ozil, who I think was very, very good. Back to the Ozil of last season in this game. He's had a bit of a rocky start to the season, but just brilliant kind of effortless on the ball and then the uh sublime nature of that that uh final goal for arsenal was mm-hmm. uh probably is what 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 gives it to him i i'm i'm very uh very very impressed with uh with him as a player these last uh last last year and a half or so and, and have to say that a lot of the critiques we had of him 
in the past uh, have gone out the window for me. You you hear that Arsenal supporters? That was a compliment from Karthik to an Arsenal player. But I will tell you that before we start recording, he said all kinds of poor things about Arsenal. So make sure you tweet <laughs> at him at K uh, at KKFLA seven three seven. All right, Chris, let's do our top fours now. My top four on form: City, uh, Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool. Yours? City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham. Although I think Arsenal and Tottenham could change around at any point because as I tweeted out on Saturday, for me, Tottenham are really flying under the radar right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to say on form, City, Liverpool, Spurs and Arsenal. And then end of the season, I'm going City to win, United second, Tottenham third, Chelsea fourth. Chris? Wait, say that again. What was the question? Uh, end of the season top fours. So the first four top four were uh, on form. I think you might have... Um, ah, okay. My apologies. Yeah. I, I think the same again. I think the, as I predicted for both, I think on form and at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And Karthik? Uh, end of the season, City, Spurs, United, Arsenal. All right. Liverpool, so Liverpool yeah. knocking at the door. I, I, I had them ninth before the season. I've got them fifth now. And, oh boy. I mean, pretty soon I'll have them second. Pretty soon I'll have them first at this rate, maybe. Ugh. Talk about my nightmare coming true. <laughs> when we come back, we'll uh, give you, we'll update you on the leagues around Europe, uh, as well as finish up with the games that we haven't discussed. And that'll be the end of tonight's World Soccer Talk podcast. Stay tuned for part three. I'm going to update really qu- you quickly around the, the leagues around Europe. Uh, in Bundesliga, goals by Aubameyang, Piszczek and Rafael Guerrero gave Thomas Tuchel's men a 3-1 win over Freiburg, whereas Bayern scored a late 88-minute winner via Kimmich to score to secure a 1-0 win over Hamburg, who fired their coach Bruno Labadia after the game. Bayern are top of the table with a perfect record, with Dortmund in second. In France, Serge Aurier was sent off as PSG were upset by Toulouse, who's, who jumped ahead of the Paris, club, the Paris club into second place after seven games played. Nice are top of the table with a game in hand at the time of recording. In La Liga, a Messi-less Barcelona walloped Sporting Gijón 5-0 away from home, whereas Real Madrid dropped points as they could only secure a 2-2 draw away at Las Palmas. An Antoine Griezmann goal led an entirely dominant Atletico Madrid to a 1-0 win over Deportivo La Coruña. In a fairly poor game that this host had the misfortune of watching during the Chelsea-Arsenal game, Juventus secured a 1-0 win away from home at Palermo, courtesy of, Eduard- uh, courtesy of an Eduardo own goal to stay top of Serie A with six games played. Napoli won 2-0, while Inter, were, uh, Inter tied 1-1 against Chievo and Bologna respectively, while Joe Hart helped Torino to a 3-1 win over Roma, Torino's first win against Roma at home in 25 years. Gentlemen, let's talk about City's win away at Swansea City. Man City, that is. Uh, Pep Guardiola, let's start with you, Karthik. Pep Guardiola has now won his first six games as a Premier League manager, equaling the record set by Carlo Ancelotti in 2009-2010. That's a pretty magnificent record. Uh, and um, I guess I don't even know what question to ask here because genuinely I, I watched this City team and except for the fact that De Bruyne is injured, I really find it difficult to find any flaws just just yet. 
Right, but there you just identified a flaw. Uh, De Bruyne <laughs> an has been, yeah, right. No, De Bruyne has been arguably the best player in the league this season. Mm-hmm. He and Sterling, I think, are, are the two standout performers on, on this team. Uh, let's see if Sterling continues to stand out without De Bruyne and the team, because I think what's happening is that their their interchange and their their movement uh, feeds off of one another. Sterling and De Bruyne, and, and uh, Nolito is part of that too. He'll be back yeah. in a few games. Uh, I think he has one more game to serve in the suspension. So who, which who is comes next in for that game. position? Uh, Karthik, will Sané come in? Will will they restructure with, um, with with the way Fernandinho and Gundogan are played? What, I think the they options? might. Yeah, I and mean, you can push Silva into a, into a central role, which he played at the beginning of the game yesterday, and then uh, was shifted as as uh, Swansea was beginning to control the midfield. And uh, you might bring Leroy Sané, and he's now fit, or uh, or Jesus Navas on the wing. That's always an option uh, for uh, for with De Bruyne hurt, and then obviously Aguero up top. But it's um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this um, this team continues to play because they're playing at such a high level, and there's right. so much energy expended, so much running uh, being done by the likes of Raheem Sterling and Nolito before he got suspended. That you wonder, can they keep up this pace for an mm-hmm. entire season? This is the Premier League. There's no winter break like there was at Bayern uh, for Guardiola, and that is a big, big question mark right now. And I think that's the really the only question mark over Manchester City, other than obviously the health of Vincent Company, and now uh, basically probably having to, because Mangala was loaned out and Denier was loaned out, having to rely on Stones and Otamendi and potentially having to play Kolarov at center back more than you would have liked to, and or even Fernando at center back mm-hmm. uh, you would have liked to. Uh, if there's one thing that Guardiola loves is a midfielder in in center defense, so I don't think it would bother him too no, I don't think that would be a problem for him, right, right. Chris, tell me what kind of holes do you see, possible holes do you see in the City team that Karthik might not have highlighted? Honestly, I don't see any. Right. It's, if, it's, I'm, if, I, if I'm really honest, I, are we, you are, are we just Are, are you and I straws. just literally so enamored by Guardiola that we are unable to look at possible holes? Are there no holes? Because I wonder about that sometimes. Like, I know it's true for me. I think Guardiola is a magnificent manager. I hate the fact that he's at City. And whenever I see his teams playing well, it, it, he, he's like the last beacon of hope for me in some ways because we see the, we see the preponderance of counterattacking football. We see the preponderance of not having possession. And here's this guy who has stayed true the possession style, has maintained a level of success with the possession style with a, just a myriad of different players at different clubs. So are we just so freaking enamored by Guardiola that we don't see flaws? I'm going to say no, but then that, <laughs> um, I, I think what it is, part of the reason is we have such a small sample size of Guardiola. So it is hard to, to kind of pick anything away from it because like I said, it happens so dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, even when you look at the goals, for me personally, I could be missing something at this point. It, it, honestly, it, it's one of those things where this week I'm, I'm genuinely going to go back and try and find a hole. That, yeah, that's I'm how impressive that they've been. Um, be, because, again, we know about the, we have these almost very broad brushstrokes about what a Guardiola team is, how it operates, what it does well. And then you try and draw weaknesses off the back of that. So they like possession. Okay, give them possession, but sit deep and soak the space up. But I think he's moving opponents around and creating 
the kind of situations where the space appears before you realize it. Um, That's what's been most impressive for me is that when they've scored these goals that look so incredibly simple when you watch them and you think, well, how has a team of professionals been pulled around like that? But then you actually watch the move itself and you see the very subtle passes and, and the way they're put together, all with the sole intention of engineering, say, for example, a really big space around the penalty spot. It, it is very impressive to watch. And I think, of course, there's a good chance he'll lose a game at this point. But I genuinely thought watching them at the weekend, there's a chance this lot could go unbeaten. <sighs> Assuming they don't have a, a crooks or, excuse me, a crooks, a, a handful of, of injuries to, to key players. De Bruyne is one, obviously. I would be tempted to say they're the closest I've seen since the Invincibles to a team that could go unbeaten. Wow. Clearly, you didn't rate last year's Newcastle United team too soon, oh, Chris, yeah. too soon. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they got that out of the way very quickly. They didn't <laughs> want the pressure of going unbeaten. <laughs> That's what it was. Karthik, let's talk about uh, Southampton's win over West uh, West Ham United. Oh, wow. 3-0 uh, win. To, it was only game played today, Karthik. I was watching it, and, and the first half was about the most dour football uh, I have se- dire football I've seen in a long time. Um from a West Ham perspective, Havard Nordweit, probably the only player that even tried to get into the opposition box. West Ham actually tried to keep possession and they did a decent job of it. But there was very slow build-up, no pace in attack. And Southampton's goal came from the only piece of speedy play in the entire team, entire half from either team. And of course, it involved Tadic, who, who we love on this podcast. Yeah, I just felt like... Uh... Southampton was good value for the three nil. I mean, that's that's hard to hard to say. Such a skewed scoreline, but uh, West Ham were terrible. I mean, their possession was not possession with purpose, right? right. They were just it was just in midfield, yeah, just across yeah, they're just moving the ball around. And yeah. I felt like at halftime, the one nil was going to be two or three nil, unless there was some significant change to the way West Ham played, and we didn't feel that urgency till about the seventieth minute. I, mm-hmm. I feel like the the ground the is se- uh, yeah, exactly right. It was still the second goal. That West Ham started playing, just like last week when they came back to win 4-2. This yeah, time, however, it didn't work. Yeah, the the, the ground was uh, was uh, kind of uh, just dour, and 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 maybe the the crowd got behind the team after the second goal, second Southampton goal. But it, the stadium move has not is not worked out for them. The football isn't very good. The guys who were standout performers last season are. Are not playing well. I think uh, Mark Noble has really fallen off mm-hmm. uh, this season. From what I what I can gather, defensively they're making errors. There's just all kinds of problems. But uh, let, let's look at the other side. The team that won, Claude Puel's team, has played pretty well this season without getting an optimum result yet. So this this is the kind of game that I think can jumpstart them. Southampton, I think, consistently as I've watched them, has played other than the game against Manchester United, has played pretty well. And even the game against Arsenal, they were unlucky to lose that match at the Emirates, remember. Um, I thought they were very good in that game. And uh, this might be the result they need to jumpstart them. Uh, just like It seems like West Ham is this tonic for teams because uh, uh, Watford gets West Ham and, and then they, they go on a run, right? And, and Southampton now is getting West Ham and they're going to go on a run potentially. And, and it's getting West Ham at the Olympic Stadium or London Stadium as it's being called. Uh, you get you get these three away points that you don't expect. Uh, you you 
get all kinds of confidence, and and then you're you're you're, you're uh, up and running. We saw that with Watford. They uh, were down two nil at halftime, and uh, they came in uh, second half against uh, the same West Ham team a few weeks ago and just ripped them apart in the second half. Similar to what we see from Southampton today, a lot of counterattacking, right. uh, a lot of pace in the movement on those moves, four goals, and and then they beat Manchester United the next week. Uh, they, I, I get the sense this can happen with Southampton. Larger question, guys, is um, West Ham. What happened? This is uh, this is historically something that seems to happen to the Hammers. If they have one really good season in the Premier League where they finish in the top half and they push for Europe or qualify for Europe, then they fall off the following season. It was something that I had completely forgotten about in making my prediction that they, they would finish sixth or seventh this season because uh, this, is, this is a return to for them and generally what happens is they fall off and they fight relegation the following season and sometimes they escape and sometimes they don't this uh this season they might be fighting relegation although it seems like there's a a number of bad teams in the division and west ham shouldn't be on a list with uh with the likes of burnley or hull or 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 stoke the way they started the season or, or sunderland but look they're playing as badly as anyone i mean they're they're shipping goals in a in a manner that nobody else is other than stoke uh, in this league so it's um it's really worrying mm-hmm. uh chris uh talking about west ham and Karthik asks about he had, he kind of posed it to us like what's going on with west uh, west ham uh i look obviously we talked about the stadium in our very first episode of the, this season's podcast where we talked about the possible effect moving away from upton park will have or the bowling ground whatever it was called last season uh w- would have on uh, on <clears throat> on west ham's uh, team performance but i look at slavin village and there was a moment in this game um it was after the first goal was scored and Bilic looked like a man completely devoid of ideas. And I compared the man we see this season and I compared the man we saw last season who was just full of fire. I remember uh, them conceding a goal to, goal to Chelsea and him just having a, a real go at Mikel Antonio. So I wonder, has Bilic lost some of his fire? I don't know which philosopher said it, but more money, more problems. Um, <laughs> they, that would be notorious had a- B.I.G., I think. <laughs> they, they had a, a significant amount to spend in the summer and yet when you actually look at the business they did none of it felt like it was plan a business if that makes sense um they kind of scrabbled around for a forward they eventually got zaza who for what it's worth i don't think is a bad player and i find it PK's quite laughable when yeah. yeah i find it quite laughable when when you watch some of these these fan channels and, and fans come out and talk about how useless figuli is and Zaza. They're not. They're just not a good fit for this present team in the way that it's playing, and they're also in bad form. Um, like I said, I think that they didn't have the best summer in terms of what they wanted to achieve. I also think some things are coming to bite them on the rear end now, like the Charlie Adam talk um, of him having no ligaments. Um, for, for me, it's a, a club that just needs a little bit more direction. I think it had a decent enough plan last season, but actually when you look at that plan, it was founded largely on can we get the ball to Dimitri Payet? Mm-hmm. And I think, again, when you hang your hat on one player like that, it's always a recipe for disaster. It's always yeah. going to be the kind of thing that can can cause you trouble, um, especially when you consider, I think they've moved to a stadium where the pitch is actually a lot bigger than uh, the bowling ground. So <clears throat> that in itself brings added difficulties to it. Most notably, can you get Pyre into those areas and get him around the pitch? Because I, I don't think... Uh, 
Pai is out of shape necessarily. I wouldn't call him the quickest or fastest or most mobile midfielder in the league. Um, there's definitely a bulkiness to him that makes me think he can't get around the field as easily as others. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move to our last game uh, that we're going to discuss. Karthik, a uh, pretty entertaining game given that it involved two clubs uh, that haven't provided us a lot, very entertaining football so far. Uh, Sunderland and Palace. Uh, it was a come-from-behind win for Pardue's Palace. Uh, Palace, for whatever reason, Karthik, decided that they were going to try to play at Barcelona or trying to play out of the back and it contributed to Ledley's pass that led to the first goal that Defoe put away. And I'll point out that the three goals that they did score, Palace, uh, Palace that is, were from very English-style football. Long balls, crosses from the left, in, in the case of uh, Zeki Friars from the left. So why why is Palace trying to play a style of football that really they are not suited for when they have the wingers and personnel they do? That's a very good question. I, I, I don't know, honestly. I think that it's um, it's something that sometimes happens to Pardue Pardu teams where, and Chris can probably speak more intelligently about this, where they get into this mire of, of personalities and players, and and their tactics become become a, a, a mush of things, which is what I remember vaguely happening at Newcastle in in several occasions. So I think that that's the the most logical explanation. I mean, I, I think that makes perfect sense. But then, Chris, from a Sunderland perspective, we have talked about David Moyes, and we I keep doing this on the podcast. David Moyes, David Moyes, David Moyes. He's had a bit of time in Spain. He can be he, called David if he wants. David, he, uh, he talk about David Moyes. Um, it's the only when, thing complicated about him. Yeah, when, when he was at Everton, Chris, one of the one of the things we knew was Everton was able to keep a keep a lead. They were able to come back and win late games. With Sunderland being two up in this game and losing three two at home is straight up unforgivable. It is, <clears throat> and and I actually watched this game uh, live, and the the thing that stood out to me is uh, the Joe Ledley goal that goes in. Yeah. I want to say no more than sixty seconds after Defoe's second. Mm-hmm. From then onwards, it was a series of bad decisions by the players on the field. Now, the thing that I didn't understand is, is that David Moyes firmly threw those players under the bus afterwards. Right. And said so something along the lines of, I think it's time for them to, to kind of stand up and you know be counted. I think that's a really bad idea. I think he needs to foster as much togetherness as possible. Because if there was one thing that was prevalent throughout last season under Sam Allardyce, it was that togetherness. And I think the second you start to form a, petition, a partition between yourself and the players, you're on for an absolute shocker of a run. Um, and like I said, watching them after that Ledley goal, they just seemed nervous. They didn't really want to take a shot. There was an instance where Kirchhoff got the ball on the edge of the box. And instead of just having a shot in the same way that Ledley did, and mm-hmm. maybe it gets a deflection, maybe it does something, he tried to pass it again. And it... Right. Like I say, you know, in, in the age of of analytics, we talk about taking shots in, in good areas and things like that. It's the perfect area, perfect opportunity for a shot. And for whatever reason, there is a really chronic nervousness that covers the stadium alike when they're holding on to a lead like that. Um, I don't think they're ever comfortable really dominating a game. And I think, honestly... As is often the case um, with teams that are near this part of the league or near the bottom, when they do get relegated, it's years in the making for the most part. 
um, promoted teams aside, it's years in the making. And this current Sunderland team is a problem that is years in the making. Yeah. They don't really have any, I would say, huge characters. Um, Jermaine Defoe is always willing to come and talk to the press and always willing to, to give things honestly. I think that's different to being a captain. And I honestly don't think Lee Catamol is either. I think he's a bit of a throwback who can put a meaty challenge in. But when it actually comes to organising and leading them and giving them a belief that they can not only hold on to, to wins, but even turn games round, he's just not that. And you look at some of the decisions and some of the purchases, and again, we could do another separate pot on this. It's just a catalogue of errors from, from Sunderland, both on the pitch, on the technical side of those who've purchased these players, and then also the group that's been assembled. Um, I think it was... Uh, it might have been Mourinho, actually. Uh, someone said of him that he's working with with three or four players, different uh, three or four different managers' players, and you know he has to be given time and this kind of thing. Same applies to David Moyes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not his biggest fan. Um, I don't think he's he's you know earth shatteringly good as a manager. He is also working with a squad that is best described as a, a, a cascade of very different approaches. To, to football management. Um, and I, I don't see it getting any better for someone. Now, in fairness, I said last year I thought they would get relegated and they managed to, to make me look silly. I don't think I'll be made to look silly again this year if it keeps up. I don't think finishing 17th or 16th makes you <laughs> look silly, Chris. It was just a crazy battle uh, at the end of the season. Tomorrow, Watford travels to Burnley in the final game of week six of the Premier League. In order to review that game, as well as next weekend's big one, Tottenham versus Man City, uh, we will be back and we'll be talking about those games as well as around uh, games around Europe in next week's World Soccer Talk podcast. If you'd like to find the, po- find the podcast, follow us on Twitter at WSoccerTalk. Me at Nipun Chopra 7, Karthik for your Arsenal hate at KKFLA737, and Chris at K Henach. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, Karthik. Enjoy your football. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.